Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Napoleonicist. Today is the 18th of June. It's Waterloo Day, but that's not the focus of today's episode. I'm not being predictable. If you're tuning in for some Waterloo material, there's an episode that went out on Wednesday, so I kind of have been predictable, but never mind. And if you scroll back through the Napoleonicist back catalogue, you'll find a huge Waterloo Remembered series, which went out this time last year. Today is an exciting moment for me because, forgive the self-indulgence, but a book is coming out with my name on the cover. It's called The Sword and the Spirit and is an edited collection of some cutting-edge, high-caliber research, not done by me, which is why it's cutting-edge and high-caliber, which was <laughs> showcased in the War and Peace in the Age of Napoleon conference that I co-organized in London in 2019. You'll be able to get an exclusive discount on this title as a thank you for your loyalty as a Napoleonicist listener, but you'll have to listen to the end of the episode to get that because these things aren't easy in life. To give you a taster of the brilliant work on offer in this volume, I am joined by four of the authors who contributed to it. Ed Koss is Emeritus Professor at U the United States Command and General Staff College and wrote the brilliant All for the King Shilling on soldiers in the British Army during the Peninsula, one of my top five books of history frankly, ever, which is mm. no offence to other folks in the room, but it's, it's just stellar. Vanya Bellinger, who lectures at the US Air Force. In fact, I believe, Vanya, you were involved in setting up their new Space Defence Programme College stuff, which is really, yes. really cool. Uh, I'm a little bit involved in that too. Fantastic. But you're not here to discuss the defence of the stars because Napoleon didn't quite decide to try and annex them. You wrote, as I recall, uh, The Woman Behind the Making of On War on the wife of Carl von Clausewitz, Marie von Clausewitz. We also have Andrew Bamford, who wrote Sickness, Suffering and the Sword, which is coming out in paperback in a couple of weeks, I believe. Uh, and he's also the series, series editor uh, of the From Reason to Revolution series at Hellion who've published The Sword and the Spirit. So in effect, he's been my very patient boss over the last few weeks. And last, but by no means least, we have Silvio Gregorio Sainz, who is a lecturer at Oviedo University out in Spain. They're all wonderful people, 
partly because they've put up with me editing their work for the last year, but mainly because they're incredible researchers. Welcome, everyone. It is great to have you on The Napoleonicist. Thank you. Pleased to be here. Let's, let's dive straight in. Um, Ed, I'm going to go with you, first of all. Folks know that I do occasionally like to sort of poke the hornet's nest that can be the cult Napoleon. You haven't so much poked the hornet's nest as taken a sawn-off shotgun to the hornet's nest and blown it wide apart. Because if you are a, an inveterate fan of Napoleon who refuses to believe that there is the smallest blemish on the guy's character, this is going to make for very compelling but also very awkward listening. I'm not going to spoil anything other than to say that Ed's research was the focus of a keynote lecture and boy, it did not disappoint. Ed, give us a five minute summary of your research on Napoleon. It's going to irritate people. It just will. But like you said, Napoleon is always presumed and is always presented as a stable genius, unfettered by personal quirks like the rest of us and nearly immune to the psychological trauma even though he'd been at war for two decades. <clears throat> so a careful examination prodded by five of my students who were clinical psychologists, um, a careful examination of his words and those who either heard or recorded them cast serious doubt on his portrayal of him as a stable genius. These mental health professionals, as we'll get into detail, they agreed in the end, independently and unanimously, that Napoleon seemed to exhibit behaviors consistent with narcissistic personality disorder. Depression, possibly bipolar, and maladies likely related to traumatic brain injury. Uh, this examination, um, of course, without actually having Napoleon in the room, is problematic. In fact, the American Psychological Association says it's unethical for professionals to do this to living, to, for living individuals. But there is a window there that we get by with, with historical figures. So we were very, very careful ethically in both uh, psychological and historical fields. The related challenge was finding a way for me to put Napoleon in the room with these psychologists, given the 200-year gap. And again, the decision was made to limit the research to either Napoleon's actual words or those who were in the room and recorded them, trying to reduce that distance as much as possible. And I'm trying to cut down 55 pages to five minutes. So just, you know, pardon me. Uh, we examined thousands of pages of Napoleon's words, thousands of them, just trying to get him that one step closer to the examination room. But then even... Even our study must be remembered, it's not definitive. It's but an approximation. So you'll hear phrases like might be, perhaps, it might have been, because that's the best we're going to come up with. We actually had no expectations that Pullian would present behaviors uh, consistent with any mental illnesses. This whole thing was begun because we were trying to see what effects, if any, uh, that PTSD might have played in Napoleon's decision-making, because how can you, one out of every three to four of my students had PTSD. So how, after 20 years, can Napoleon not have PTSD? What we discovered, of course, 
was something else entirely. He repeatedly and consistently exhibited behaviors to narcissistic personality disorder, like I mentioned. There are nine categories. He exhibited it for seven of them. You only need five to get the diagnosis. And these included, and I don't want to go to all of them, grandiosity, fantasies of unlimited success, uh, believes he is special, lack of empathy, arrogant, etc. He hit those repeatedly and strongly so that there was unanimous consent that they thought that he was definitely in that uh, disorder range. Again, this is not me spitballing psychological analyses. These were me presenting historical information to clinical psychologists. So what they came up with in return was often surprising because I had initially driven in that direction. What they came up with was, uh, again, the unanimous belief that he was somewhere in the bipolar depressive continuum. Uh, and that he exhibited these behaviors from when he was young all the way through to the end at St. Helena. There was also concern that he had suffered traumatic brain injury because I'm somewhat familiar with that through athletics and the TBI that my soldiers get from getting blown up and MRAPs and things. And this is a serious deal. Anytime you get knocked out, anytime you see stars, anytime you've had back in the day, they used to call it getting your bell rung. Those are traumatic brain injuries and then their scale. When Napoleon managed to get himself knocked out twice, uh, the first time was 10 days before the coup of Brumaire. And that's an interesting thing because, again, it will lead to the so what? Why do we care about this analysis? Napoleon is just this trivia. But he got himself knocked out for several hours. His horse stumbled, thrown, threw him to the ground. The impact was taken by Napoleon's skull. That would be a type one uh, TBI, that's serious. Um, and if you think about his erratic behavior and near psychological collapse during the coup, that very well could have been related to traumatic brain injury. So the second time he decided he could drive a six horse carriage that he had no experience with, it took off. He hit a rail, he threw himself, he got thrown out, and he knocked himself out. In fact, he said he, at that point he was, he thought he had died. So these things, when the brain gets smashed against the cranium, these have these things are serious uh, emotional, psychomotor, uh, cognitive issues, and you just don't get away with them. And once you have one, you're most likely, it's twice as likely you'll have two, and four times as likely you'll have three. So these things are something to consider. And then finally, it turns out that our initial driving PTS hypothesis was totally wrong. Uh, he appears to have suffered few to none of the dreams, flashbacks, distress, etc. Uh, he wasn't unable to articulate events. He didn't exhibit persistent or exaggerated negative beliefs. He didn't have persistent negative emotions about shame or anger or horror. In fact, he gave the impression he was free of all these symptoms, which is pretty remarkable given his, his time at war that a million French soldiers died under his command, not to mention all the horrors of the battlefield that he had seen. So we dug into that, we being the students and then me listening very carefully. 
But they determined that one of the characteristics of the narcissistic personality disorder, the lack of empathy, turns out likely protected Napoleon from the kind of moral injuries that most people suffer in PTSD. In other words, if you don't care enough, it won't bother you. And who knew? And this flaw in his emotional makeup meant that the needs and experiences of the soldiers didn't have a serious impact on Napoleon's emotional state. That's, that's important because, you know, he never once in all the thousands of pages he dictates on St. Helena, he never mentions the soldiers and their sacrifice a single time. Uh, so what? Uh, I would say that the most intriguing aspect of this is what effect this might have understanding this on historians who assess Napoleon's conduct, knowing that he is not in a stasis from one year to the next or uh, from beginning to end. There are a lot of incident-specific psychological issues that ought to be taken into account. Like, what's he think about really when he's going to Russia? It's more than megalomania. There's a lot of other things going on. So if these maladies have impaired Napoleon to some extent, and they've changed his capacity to reason and interact, then understanding that these cognitive and emotional impairments had shaped him every day of his life, I think allows us to examine his words and deeds with a higher degree of psychological insight than has been the case. Every time I hear about this, it staggers me. But then I kind of sit back and think, this is Napoleon. Why are we surprised that he was an extreme narcissist? It, it, in, in so many respects, it, it completely fits. What I really liked about this research, actually, was you went out looking for PTSD and then in the end found that that PTSD hypothesis was completely wrong, which just goes to show that actually this wasn't approached with a preconceived notion. You weren't going out in evidence, looking for evidence of narcissism. You stumbled at, well, you didn't so much stumble across it as ended up having to scale the mountain on it. Um, there are going to be folks from the, the pro-Napoleon camp who are going to want to dismiss this off the bat without bothering to engage with it properly. And folks do bother to go engage with it because having read these chapters many times, I can tell you it's utterly meticulous in how it goes about putting across the case for this. But give folks a sense of how you dealt with that problem of you've got somebody who's been dead for 200 years. You're trying to achieve a psychological analysis. And that's not easy when somebody isn't in the room in front of you at the best times. As you say, for living people, you can't form that, that diagnosis on, on living people for very obvious reasons. So how did you try and offset those problems and explain that for the folks who might be skeptic about, skeptical about the, the methodology here? I tried to do it with volume by looking at literally every, uh, boy, boy, did I get tired of reading the secretary's, Napoleon's dictations at St. Helena, volume after volume of him often pontificating or rambling or ranting or giving insight and you couldn't tell so I just thought I'd read it all. And anything, again, I had inclinations. I was familiar with the, uh, the Diagnostic and Statistical, uh, Statistical Manual for Mental Disorders, which I was familiar with it, but 
I just looked at any time he had a telling interaction with someone or said something or didn't say something like not mentioning the soldiers and their sacrifices. Uh, when he made commentary, when he, when he found like when Berthier and that whole thing with his wife, he wants the way well, he wants the that mistress to become his wife. And Napoleon says, you can't wait any longer to marry this princess. And because that woman's married and then that woman's husband immediately dies. And you would think and Berthier comes to him crying and you think you'd have, some degree of empathy because you guided him in all this long path. And Napoleon relates it on St. Helena as a joke. He thought it was just wildly humorous that his friend has to go through this trauma and uh, that uh, if he had just waited, things might've been differently. And you see those things pop up. So yeah, I tried to deal with, with Vime and looking at everything I could. I tried to stay away from secondhand, secondhand analyses. I did one other people's opinions because that's just going to interfere. You don't bring your neighbor into counseling and have tell him tell what he thinks about you. You bring you into counseling. And the best thing was having these phenomenal students who do this for a living and just presenting them the day. It took us two years to, to complete this. So hope that answers your question. It does. And I, I like the, the fact that you haven't tried to put this together on your own. You went to the experts. You know, you didn't just think, hey, I'm going to, you know, read a couple of books on neuro um, neurology and and mental health and, and try and cobble something together. You went to people who do this for a living, five of them, if I remember rightly, um, and got them to do the analysis of the material and just kind of were a, a presenter of information. Um, the, th the thing that did was most interesting was I didn't know how they were going to and analyze it. So with the narcissistic personality disorder, you got nine characteristics. And I'm waiting because if we have two of them saying he exhibits and one says, I don't think so, the book would have been told, the chapter would have been totally different. When I got them back, they were unanimous across these categories and they had done it independently. So that gave me, it was both interesting, but it gave me some degree of, of confidence that what we were going to present had credibility it is pretty emphatic what's your hope for this because i, I know why i've in, included this in in the edited collection but what's your hope about how folks are going to take this material going forwards can we use this as a reappraisal of napoleon's actions? can we take it that deeply can we rewrite the history of his life by looking at this i suppose it's possible it is one of a kind and it's, I'm not sure how many other times you're going to get five professionals to dedicate this kind of time to something that's historical. And much of this, again, was they came to me in class going, sir, we should, ex we should examine this. This is so interesting. Well, my hope is that it gives people pause. Anything we write is just about creating discourse. That's all. We're not being definitive. I think any, every historian is right, writing, as I know Vanya did, and I love her stuff and Andrews, uh, books that give us pause, give us insight, make us reevaluate what we know, give us a little bit of that cognitive dissonance and make us dig a little deeper and stop taking things for its surface value. So yeah, that's what I'm hoping that it would spread enough that the next person that writes about Napoleon in Russia might take a five minute time out to think about what his mental state was, how this aligns 
with some of the delusions that are part of narcissism. And, and if we could do that, I think we would get closer to understanding his motivations because to believe that Napoleon was always the same from Austerlitz to Waterloo. Now he does have some consistent characteristics, but I think war and the mantle power brought them forth the things he may have hidden. And when he tried to be charming, but that turns out to be more of a show, those kind of things. I, I, I like to see people look at whatever they're going to examine with Napoleon, I hope with a different degree of insight. Which is exactly why I was so keen to have this, because I think if we start to explore this issue of Napoleon's mental state at different points in his career, it starts potentially to offer some explanations of one of the head scratching moments about Napoleon during his career. So for example, Borodino, where he effectively seems to sort of sit there and, and almost sulk his way through the battle and refuse to commit the garden and refuse to really be as actively involved as we might expect. Waterloo and some of the, the odd characteristics that we see exhibited there. So thank you for that, Ed. That was a great demonstration of why this is such a, a compelling topic. I'm going to open it up to the floor before we move on. Folks, have you got any questions you want to put to Ed first? Um, so you now started with Napoleon and that's kind of also opening the field. And we talked about it, like we should actually try much more of those historical figures to look at their psychological state and see um, how they took, how they made decisions and so on. Um, that your study kind of opens the field, you know, wide opens the field and like gives new interpretations. Um, so what other figures you personally would like to have also examined? <laughs> there are too many, but the limitations, one of the things that uh, suggested uh, in this chapter was to go and examine historically who's done this before. Well, how, and mostly, mostly it turns out that it's either historians with no psychological background trying to do this armchair stuff, which doesn't help us at all. Or when it's done by psychologists, they don't know anything about history and they base all their analysis on one secondhand biography. You know, when you, when you figure you get a 300 page analysis and it's based on one 200 page, uh, it's, it's not secondhand stuff, it's not good. So the problem is, and I would love to see Clausewitz personally, just <laughs> not because you're there, because you know how, how much I, I think that that's such a rich field. We ha we'd have to find people willing to do it. And then you have to have this long, research is there enough of their papers or is there enough private correspondence private notes dictations that you can kind of bridge those gaps i mean one of the books i examined had napoleon gandhi uh churchill it had like 10 people 12 people and for me it was like well this would have taken a lifetime because of the slow nature of doing one of these so who would you like well, Clausewitz, of course, and maybe Marie, of course. Oh, yes. Do we have enough correspondence for Marie to, to do this? Um, there is, I think, and there, there are other correspondence, you know, uh, from her to her relatives and so on. So, yeah. Oh, I'm in. So if you need me, call. Okay. I mean, an obvious contender for this is, of course, Wellington. 
um, who, I don't know about narcissism, but certainly, boy, was he an arrogant individual. Um, I mean, there's certainly the correspondence there for it. After Rory Muir's two-volume set, who would venture into that field lightly? I mean, what else could possibly be written or said? I th- although I think it's interesting, I would have just, no, I would say Rory, see Rory, right? <laughs> okay, well, Vanya, since we've been discussing Clausewitz and Marie von Clausewitz, let's move on to your chapter now. This is a very different tech. In fact, all of these look at very different areas and have different kind of aims behind it. It struck me when I was writing the editorial for this that yours is about reframing a misconception about an individual. And I won't say any more than that. I'll let you take it from here. Okay, thank you. Uh, First, because I work for the US government, I have to state the standard disclaimer now that the uh, opinions expressed by me today are my own and do not represent those of the US government, the Department of Defense, or the Department of the US Air Force. So after that out of the way, I can talk about the chapter. Um, Now, my chapter studies the actions of Karl von Clausewitz in the 1815 campaign. Uh, most specifically, the Battle of Ligny, which precedes Waterloo, and then Vavre, which is the twin battle. Um, Waterloo's uh, twin battle, where the third uh, Prussian Army Corps um, prevents Grouchy from coming and supporting Napoleon. Um, Clausewitz, in those battles, um, he is the chief of staff uh, for the Third Prussian Army Corps under the command of uh, General Tillman. Um, Clausewitz's performance in 1815 is the subject of controversy, namely there are claims that he was too timid. That's also the title of my article, A Timid Staff Officer. So, and he did not uh, boldly send his men into the battle. Um, And these claims are particularly damaging for Clausewitz because um, in On War, that's one of the main points in On War where he emphasized always bold actions, take the actions. Um, So there is this um, discrepancy or perceived discrepancy between his own actions in war and what he wrote later in his his theoretical work. Um, After close examination of those two battles, um, I argue in my article that there there isn't much evidence uh, for Clausewitz's alleged timidity. He actually drafted uh, uh, brazen plans, especially after Vavre, trying to draw um, Grouchy's men further and further and destroy them. But those plans simply did not pan out. You know, that that happens in war. You make bold plans and they do not work out. Um, And more importantly, the analysis of Clausewitz's actions provide us with better understanding of his writings, especially when it comes to the interplay of chance and probability. Also intelligence, after reading his actions, you come to understand why he was so critical of intelligence, you know, because they, they had such a huge problems with intelligence in the Napoleonic era, but also the challenges of building a modern general staff, because this is the beginning of the modern general staff. So they build it, but there is still uh, problems here and there. And also the strength 
strengths and weaknesses of coalition warfare, which famously Clausewitz wanted to write a chapter on uh, Allied commander that he did not finish. But I make the point that that comes most likely from that experience. Um, and the, the indirect reason for my article was um, actually two years ago, there was this huge Bruchaha uh, debate on, on social media, and um, namely that uh, new historians, new military historians like me, people who write books on their wives of famous men or um, uh, so on, they cannot write uh, real operational military history. So I was kind of, I took it a little bit by heart and I wanted to write um, actually, and I wanted to write something on operational history, but do it um, with the, um, with the way we in the new military history right you know to have more on psychological forces you know the psychological environment but also the role of the media because actually how those battles are shaped or our perception about those battles are shaped also uh, by media controversies um also um the the confusion you know i did not want to write just the battles you know that um troops went there and so on i wanted to see these three six almost 360 I don't know if I succeeded but that was my my goal like this 360 what happens in the mind of um of a commander and Clausewitz was not the commander I should say he's the chief of staff but like what happens in the mind when when you have to decide how to proceed in battle Vanya thanks very much for that um Folks won't have seen this because, you know, podcasting, you can't see the face. And even if it's on YouTube, they'll have focused on your face rather than mine. But the face I pulled when people suggested that modern military historians can't write strategic history was not a pretty one because it's, I mean, I, mean, I wouldn't use an expletive on the Napoleonises, but that's about as close as I would come to, to using an expletive. Um, it's absolute nonsense. Um, this also gives us a, a start of a sense of why this, book is called The Sword and the Spirit, because it goes back to that famous quote um, by Napoleon, um, that the spirit about, you know, which is mightier in effect, which will conquer which, the sword or the spirit. And, and we're starting to see that in kind of the psychological element, the role of individuals in shaping the events themselves, and which ultimately ends up being the, the greater factor in play. What I am really struck by about this is the fact that people were quite so kind of vociferous in their criticism of Klaus Fitz in the sense that they see an inconsistency between what he writes and supposedly what he did. Now you've proven that actually there is no inconsistency, but it always struck me as a, a bit peculiar that, you know, people can't take the fact that he might've learned something from his experiences anyway. So do you think people are gonna kind of judge him differently now off, off the base, basis of this article? Um, to be honest, um, the the battles, they've always been um, kind of, the, there is the controversy, but it will always like as an undertone. And Clausewitz was also in that battle and Third Corps was uh, ineffective and so on. And that's Clausewitz's fault and then move on. Even, you know, um, Clausewitz's biography, uh, Peter Perez's biography of Clausewitz, Clausewitz in the State, which is the standard biography, even there he 
kind of repeats um, all the claims and then um, just uh, moves on and says like, but we need more um, uh, more study of it. And um, that's, that's it. So um, I just, this um, these claims, they, they've been repeated, but no one wanted to actually look down because it's like a lot of material. You have to go to a lot of material. There is actually gaps in our knowledge. There is gaps that I also had. Um, and yes, th there is a huge period of time, you know, he's a, he was in his, he was 35 um, when he participated in the campaign and he uh, continues riding on war after that for the next 15 years. So yeah, that's, that's the experience. Um, you know, we see the, the, the man, the military man who comes like looks back to his own experience and writes about it. Um, so yes, um, we see that and we cannot expect that um, somebody who's a great theoretician he does he did everything right in his youth you know that's kind of he was relatively young when the uh, napoleonic wars ended so the whole expectation that he should perform all the time great uh, yeah that's yeah <laughs> unrealistic what i also really like about this one vanya is how it demonstrates the value of just starting over with research, not relying on all of the perceptions and all of the stuff that's been written before, but actually stripping everything back, going back to the archival documents and saying, actually, is there any real evidence for this? And I think all too often historians are guilty of being lulled into that slightly complacent, slightly easier approach of just taking another historian at face value. And, and that, of course, is how we get the, the Chinese whispers effect. So give folks a sense of what you consult over this, because it's, as you say, it's a substantial body of material that you draw upon. So I started actually, um, I mean, my my first book was on uh, Marie von Clausewitz and I, um, what I used in that book were the was the intimate correspondence between Carl and Marie. But actually, and I have to say now, I'm also guilty of that. I only, because most of Clausewitz's letters were published. We, you know, so I, when I wrote my book on Marie von Clausewitz, I did not have much time to look at Clausewitz's letters and compare, you know, with the originals. So actually I went back and first looked at, at his letters. Um, uh, is there the similar, are they the same as the ones that are published? And actually I discovered that they're like pieces um, that have been left out. So um, things like um, that Clausewitz goes to the headquarters, you know, to meet his commander, Tillman. Um, and until now, we always thought like that relationship was really great because that's like later uh, letters, Clausewitz write how everything is fun in the uh, game. I mean, they have, um, it's a very sp spirited headquarters, but actually in the first letters, you see that Clausewitz writes to Murray um, that he, he arrived in the headquarters and Tillman um, was very kind, but Clausewitz could not um, shake shake down the feeling that Tillman was expecting somebody else. You know, he did not, was not so happy to have him as um, chief of staff. So from, and that kind of gives us from the beginning that there was, um, these two men had to develop really quickly a relationship. They did not know each other or knew each other very, um, um, they were 
just from uh, evenings and so on, but they were not friends and how quickly they had to put this whole core, um, how quickly they had to do. Another thing, and, and it's been known that Clausewitz was uh, really in pain through that, throughout that campaign, that he was taking a lot of opium, but like looking again at the original letters, um, there was like whole parts that were taken out, um, just telling us how much he was in pain, you know. So I had to go and like, oh my God, that kind of gives you a little bit more insight what was going on there. And that he actually wanted to stop taking the opium, but was like, if I stop taking it, I cannot perform my duties. And it's much more important, you know, to sleep and be able on the next morning to perform my duties, even if I'm afraid that I'll be become addict. So that kind of gives you another layer. But also um, in the archives, um, I started looking for, uh, for some of the commanders, if I, um, you know, uh, under him um, to find, if I can find some papers and so on. So I was lucky actually to find um, one, of the, one of the reports of um, Willem von Grauman, who was um, under Clausewitz, did not give me much of material, but again, once you have, kind of gives you this intimacy, you know, gives you much more confidence when you're writing, you know, I've seen those documents, you know, um, gives you a little bit what's happening in the psychological forces and so on. Yeah, so... Um, and, that, and then I wanted to go through the different um, accounts of, of the battles, um, consider what was happening. Tillman, the actual commander, wrote very little about that. And that was in a way telling that uh, for some of the things, especially for Lini, he did not feel the, uh, necessary to, um, even when there were like claims that Third Corps was uh, timid and did not do much, um, Tillman as commander never felt the need to justify his actions about it, which also tells us something. So yeah, so it was really interesting to go through all Oh, I hope I went through most of them. I don't know that something might come like 20 years from now or whatever, but like I was happy just to go, try to go through all the documents, all the letters, everything that I could find, every scrap of paper that I can find about this, uh, about these battles. Well, I mean, that absolutely speaks to what I was looking for as editor, you know, pieces of work that genuinely went back to the original and produced a convincing argument off the back of it um, and I think you absolutely do that and yes it's everybody's it's every historian's fear that you know at some point a bundle of papers are going to be discovered that just completely blow our understanding out of the water but from from the chapter I, I think folks will absolutely be convinced because it's very well put together again let me open it up to the floor before we move on folks have you got any questions I do Ron, you know how much I uh value your research and your approach and as you were talking there you know so much about the forces that worked on Clausewitz have you ever considered putting something together like the human face of Clausewitz so I should probably not say too much but like I'm so um anxious to go back to the German archives and <laughs> go through the letters again, through his letters. There might be something more there, but there might not be. But there is enough material to think about it that we 
most likely need a new biography for Clausewitz. And that um, not so much, Peter Poré is great to explain, Poré's biography is great to explain um, Clausewitz, um, uh, the ideas of the time and so on. Donald Stoker is very good at explaining um, Clausewitz as a commander or his you know, overview of his military experience. But yes, we don't have anything on Clausewitz the man. You know, Clausewitz the man is always kind of suppressed by Clausewitz um, the theoretician. Or we always look at the failings of Clausewitz the theoretician. But I think if we understand a little bit Clausewitz the man, we can understand a little bit um, his writing. So the other way around. So yes. Oh, brilliant, outstanding. So we've heard it here first. Coming in 20-something, Vanya oh <laughs> uh, Bellinger's new biography of Carl von Clausewitz. And oh, if anybody else yeah. tries to snaffle it from her, we will claim copyright on the basis that you said it here first. So there you go. That's right. Rhodomosis exclusive for you. <laughs> Let's take it now to Andrew. Um, we've poked the cult Napoleon, but never let it be said that this is a bastion of cult Wellington either. Because as you found, it's, Napoleon is not the only commander who had significant failings and whose beliefs that, you know, his way was the best way uh, necessarily worked out best in the end. So without sort of dropping too many spoilers, take us through your assessment, your chapter, because it's, it's eye-opening. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Thank you. Um, my experience was a little like Ed's, actually, in that I, I went in with the expectation of proving one thing uh, uh, and ended up demonstrating something else. So uh, I, uh, I perhaps needed to modify my tape on Wellington slightly to be more favourable than, uh, than, than the... Uh, uh, the, the, the negative opinion I, I'd, I'd formed. So the, 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 the issue, which is possibly slightly obscure, but uh, uh, I, I think it's an interesting one. It's, it's something that gets repeated as a truism quite a lot with, with, without too much thought, which well, why I, I thought it worth addressing. It's a scheme that Wellington developed uh, in the later stages of the Peninsular War when uh, a lot of the veteran battalions that had thought through from the beginning were becoming fairly weak and uh, Wellington's bright idea was to take two badly understrength battalions, consolidate them into a single field unit uh, called a provisional battalion, there were initially four of them, um, 
and send home the surplus officers and NCOs to recruit. And, and the idea was that they, they would come back with, with, with fresh men uh, and the battalions would, would, would reassume their, their original identities. Um, and, and pretty much every historian of the Peninsula War says this, you know, this is a great idea. Um, of course, the person who did object was the Duke of York as Commander-in-Chief uh, because he was trying to coordinate the management of the army's manpower across the, 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 whole, the whole world. Uh, uh, the, the war by this stage had, had, had spread to North America. Uh, there were imperial commitments so a little bit later on. Uh, there was a commitment in Northern Europe, which is something I, I, I've written on elsewhere. Um, and one of the problems which I, I think limited the effectiveness of the British Army in North America and certainly limited the, the effectiveness of the British Army in Northern Europe was a shortage of manpower full stop and a shortage of, of experienced manpower. Um, and my suspicion was that that situation would have been greatly improved had Wellington done as he was told when the Duke of York initially responded to the provisional battalion scheme by saying, in effect, Oi, Arthur, pack it in and send them home. Um, because what actually happened then was, was a compromise whereby the, the, the weakest of the provisional battalions was sent home uh, uh, and the other three Wellington hung on to. And uh, there was a war of words that went on between York and Wellington and, and uh, Bathurst, who was the Secretary of State, got dragged into it as well. Um, Wellington trying to come up with reasons to keep these men and York trying to explain why they had to go home. Um, and by the end of the war, there's an agreement that Wellington will send them home when convenient. And of course, it's never convenient and they're still there at Toulouse and Bayonne. Um, so what I did was, for want of a better, counterfactual military administration, which sounds incredibly strange and dull, but basically to, to, to look at what would have been managed had had the battalions gone home at the, the beginning of 1813 as York initially wanted obviously troops would have had to go out to Wellington to replace them where would they have come from what might have been done with the units that had been sent home because the two that were sent home ended up with Sir Thomas Graham in the Netherlands um, it might be others have ended up there uh, and as I say my, my, my expectation was because I, I having studied the system as a whole and Wellington having sort of unilateral throw a spanner in it, uh, my, my expectation was to demonstrate that, that Wellington was, was wrong and that things would have been far better had it gone by the book. I, I quickly realised how, how difficult the challenge was, no matter how you look at it, because even with 2020 hindsight, I, I maybe created a situation where Wellington would have had one extra decent battalion and Graham might have got to, and possibly another one could have gone to North America and, you know, you're moving 500 men here, a thousand men there, and in, in the big picture, it's not really making a great deal of difference. Uh, uh, and I think what it actually demonstrates is that the British regimental system was was cracking under pressure by by the end of the war, uh, and that no matter of tweaking, be that by Wellington or, or by York, was going to save things. Uh, I, I would argue that those effects were being being felt, and would have argued it in. in uh, uh, sickness suffering, which, is, as that kindly said, is, is shortly being re-released. Uh, I have argued that 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 shortcoming was still being felt as late as Waterloo, um, with, with battalions that 
hadn't really been intended for frontline service in, in bearing the brunt and, and some of the better troops stole their way back from North America because men were being juggled from theatre to theatre. Uh, so yeah, Wellington, I still don't think he was right, but I think having gone into it more detail and looked at the alternatives, the consequences of him being wrong were less extreme than uh, I might have initially uh, expected. So not quite a, uh, uh, a taking a shot them to the, uh, the cult Wellington, but uh, giving the tree a bit of a shake and seeing what happens anyway. Absolutely. The, the tree is, is properly shaken. Um, and I like that it's, it's a balanced assessment at the end of the day. Um, I mean, I wasn't hugely surprised by the fact that Wellington was basically just trying to run the army to his own desires and needs and kind of viewing the wider administration of the army solely through the prism of what's happening in, in Spain and Portugal and southern France during that time. Because from a discipline perspective, as early as 1809, he's basically trying to create his own version of military law and his own types of military court in order to try the soldiers in the way that he wants to. So this is very kind of typical of the man. Um, but actually, in, in those cases, he gets what he wants out of York. And there isn't that much of a tussle, whereas here there is there's friction between the two of them over it. What I found also particularly interesting was that although nobody could have anticipated this, he could have been better at Wellington, could have been better off at Waterloo had he gone with the system than, than he was um, by, by clinging to the units uh, whilst fighting the Peninsula War. Do you get a sense that he really gained anything by keeping hold of the provisional battalions? Was it going to cause a huge issue had he let them go? Or was it this just kind of a concern that he had in his mind based on things like attrition due to climate and so on? I can see why he wanted to keep them. I mean, a, a veteran soldier, uh, particularly an acclimatised soldier, and I, I've touched on this and, and Ed's touched on this a lot, a lot as well, uh, a soldier who is used to campaigning in, in the Iberian environment is a valuable thing to have. And, and he, he, he didn't want to, to let any of them go. Um, could, would it have made a huge difference? I, I, I don't think it would. Um, there was an option that, that was being considered to bring, bring troops across from the force that was serving on the east coast of Spain. He could have gained a couple of battalions from there if, uh, if he'd gone with York's plan, but they were acclimatised and they might not have had quite the combat experience. It's, it's three battalions in an army of 60-odd you know, thousand in the field by the time you include the Portuguese, and that's not, not counting all the Spanish troops he got under command. Uh, um, you know, one, one of the three is in the seventh division and they, they, they get shunted up to Bordeaux before, before the end of the war. Um, you know, that, that, that job could have been done you know, by a militia battalion out of home. He gets a few of those, of course, at the very end of the war. If they'd gone out a bit earlier, they, they could have done that job. Um, so, no, I, I, I think... I, I can't see the Peninsula War having changed its course if, if, if Wellington had... If York, well, if York put his foot down and, and, and sent them out... I get the impression, and, and I'm I'm sort of second guessing here. Um, Wellington, by that stage, bar for a couple of nasty shocks, uh, has, has had a fairly good record. He gets quite strident in his demands about manpower as the war gets to it, its end. I can't help thinking he's getting his excuses in early, just in case. You know, just in case there's another another retreat. 
it's like, well, you know, we, 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 would, we would have advanced over the Pyrenees had I been allowed the men that I wanted. I'm, I'm maybe being unfair. I, 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 I'm a sneaky suspicion. He's got his eye on the post-war politics and he, he doesn't want to mar an excellent reputation by a, a blip near the end. And, uh, uh, and I have some excuses lined up just in case something goes, uh, goes amiss. But I'm, I'm, I'm perhaps being unfair there. That's, uh, that's speculation. Well, that taps into something that I was about to ask you, actually, which is... Do you think this is something that Wellington would have dared to do back in, say, 1809, maybe 1810, when you have a very different political and strategic situation in the Iberian Peninsula, but also back home? Do you think this is uh, something that's symptomatic of a development of Wellington's character, or is Wellington's character consistent, and it's actually the strategic situation that enables him to play hardball over this issue? Uh, he touts the idea to Liverpool, when Liverpool's still essentially, so that's that's, that's 11, um, and that it doesn't go anywhere. Um, so, yes, certainly I, th- I think at that stage he, he hasn't got the cloud, he hasn't got the reputation, he hasn't got the, 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 the political concrete backing. Um, to be able to say no, we're doing it my way uh, on on something as big as uh, as, as manpower management and, and troop dispositions, um, I think by the time he's got Salamanca under his belt and that sort of reputation, um, then and, and possibly, and I'm maybe being unfair on Bathurst here, but he's you know he's he, he's not quite Liverpool. The, the the civil head at least is uh, is somebody that maybe he can. Uh, he can push around a bit more. Um, the relationship with York is something that probably wants to look at me. I think, I think York, York needs looking into in more detail sure, in, in his capacity as commander-in-chief rather than as, as field commander earlier on. But within that, I think the York-Wellington relationship is something that, that would merit more more study uh, to, to fully answer that. But yeah, I think, I think definitely Wellington is far more confident of his position and, and a better idea of what he can get away with um, <clears throat> than would be the case earlier on. Yeah, I strongly agree with that. A decent study of the Duke of York throughout his career is long, long overdue. It's been a real frustration, actually, from my side of things, because I wonder if there's actually marked continuity between what York does before the Marianne Clark scandal in 1809, which for folks who aren't familiar, Um, York effectively, after the disastrous campaign in the Low Countries in the mid-1790s, tries to implement a series of reforms to professionalise the officer corps within the army, including trying to place limitations on abuses of the purchase system, and then is subsequently accused of having been complicit and aware of his mistress using her personal connections to take money in return for favours to encourage um, this an abuse of, of this um, purchase of commission system. And so he resigns and then comes back. And I think actually that gap ends up interrupting a series of reforms that he's trying to implement, particularly in terms of wider discipline. Um, so yes, if somebody's listening, uh, because I'm not going to get to it anytime soon, much as I would love to do it, please produce a decent study of the Duke of York, really going into the detail, not something just kind of light and skimming over the top, please. Um, But enough about my demands of the um, research community. Last but by no means least, then, thank you again for that, Andrew. I'm I'm going to say just one word by way of introduction of Sylvia's chapter, 
Popham. Sylvia, the rest is for you. Well, uh, let me first thank you, Zach, for having me in the Napoleonesis to talk about my chapter, so Home Popham's mission in 1812, Santander, a British logistics center, included in the book that you have wonderfully edited. It's a real pleasure for me to join you all today. People may wonder why I decided to talk, okay, rather write on Popham and Santander and what the connection between them was in 1812. Well, this chapter is the result of a broader research that I conducted studying Anglo-Spanish relations during the Peninsula War and especially in Cantabria, a region in the north of Spain between Asturias and the Basque Country. Uh, which concluded with my PhD thesis, Anglo-Spanish relations during the Peninsula War, 1808-1814, the example of Cantabria, that I'm now trying to, to publish. While examining the dispatches of British agents on the northern coast of Spain in 1812, of course, Wellington's correspondence too, I found numerous references to the city port of Santander and Popan's operations there. In fact, in my thesis, I transcribed a total of 395 documents spanning from 1808 to 1813, and almost 100 are dated in 1812. That British presence was also constantly alluded to in Cantabrian authorities' uh, documents. I thus decided to write about that with a double objective in mind. First, to bring into view the importance of Cantabria in the general development of events in the Peninsula War and in particular in Wellington's plans that year. And second, to highlight the impact of Popan's presence in Santander, which has been usually simplified or omitted by local and national studies. Despite Popan being the British agent, well, officer, that was longer in Santander, almost four and a half months. Let me simply give a brief overview. I'll try not to create um, spoilers, because I want everybody to get the book and read it. So the British government was aware of the strategic importance of Santander from the very beginning of the Peninsula War. Yet it was not useful until Wellington's advance into Old Castile in 1812 made diversionary operations on the Spanish northern coast essential to draw L'Armée du Nord's attention from the advance of the Anglo-Portuguese army. Thereby, Popham was sent there at the end of May. He was also ordered to, to capture a seaport that would provide a safe anchorage for the squadron to block the coast and to ease British communications and deliveries. Once in Spain, the squadron, was soon, um, the squadron soon started collaborating with the divisions of the 7th Spanish Army under General Gabriel de Mendizabal's orders in combined operations against French sea fortresses in the Basque and Cantabrian coast. Popham's main objective then was to get hold of the Basque um, city of Getaria to turn it into his operational base. Things turned out differently in July and the liberation of Santander revealed that was the safe port he was looking for to direct operations, to communicate with Great Britain and to support Wellington. Was the freeing of that city the result of a successful Anglo-Spanish operation? Well, opinions uh, differ widely. Despite Santander being in a wretched state, mind that it had been under French occupation since November 1808, local authorities and civilians 
warmly welcome the British squadron and we're willing to collaborate with them in every possible way. Concessions were even made on traditional customs, allowing, for example, theatrical representations. Well, rumors spoke of a more licentious company than a theatrical one. Consistence was in general peaceful until Santander became Popham's logistic hub in September. Combined operations were then resumed, first in Gataria and then in Santonia. Those attacks were successfully diverting French attention, but Popham was not completely satisfied with Mendizabal's collaboration or lack of it. At the same time, um, the British Commodore was also delivering military supplies to Wellington in Burgos, or trying to. Although the advantageous um, qualities of Santander port were unquestionable, those deliveries in land revealed its main drawback, a severe lack of transportation assets and security. Popham, however, was determined to turn that place into an official operational base and a port of communication with Great Britain. That's, that was not possible though, as Wellington explained, Santander would not be a safe enough port for those purposes until the Anglo-Portuguese army had effective control of the River Ebro. Being Popham's logistics hub was not an easy burden to bear for Santander inhabitants. The city was overwhelmed and the atmosphere turned strained. Also Wellington, uh, Wellington's retreat from Burgos and the enemy's proximity caused a growing fear of reprisals toward those collaborating with the British squadron. And that new attitude deeply frustrated Popham. He did not suffer that long since in December, Santander did not offer a safe position anymore Popham was ordered to return to Great Britain and his mission was over. What conclusions could I draw? First, the strategic importance of Cantabria in 1812 for the general development of the peninsula where it's confirmed, as well as the significance of Popham's diversionary operations, although rather improvised. Also, the city port of Santander emerged as a potential logistics center for the forthcoming campaign. This again speaks to why this volume is called The Sword and the Spirit, because it's looking at the interplay of individuals and their characters on the course of events. Um, and I should say this is not the only, I can't believe I'm saying this, but this is not the only chapter yeah. in this volume that deals with Popham. I mean, we talk, there is this running theme with Jacqueline Reiter on Napoleonic Twitter about Popham Bingo and the ability for this guy to Yes. appear literally everywhere and there are two chapters so literally a quarter of this book ends up talking about Popham it's it's just bizarre um, such is the nature of the guy I, I was struck by what you said about how it was quite difficult for Santander to end up being Popham's logistics base which says a lot about the self-importance of the guy that you know you've got this individual who's trying to say this needs to be an important point of communication when it is going Strategically, that doesn't make sense. Just sit down and be quiet. And Popham just being a maverick about the whole thing and, and deciding to, to do his own thing. I mean, with Popham and having to talk to and engage in a diplomatic discussion with the locals, do the two kind of work with Popham's kind of arrogant, pompous attitude? Does he grate on the locals? Okay, you... With the local authorities and the provincial ones, um, 
in some way, as they were trying to please him, he was quite happy with that situation. They were trying to do everything um, he, he said, or they were trying to give um, him and the squadron anything they, need, they needed. The problem came with, with Mendizábal because he was a Spanish general, high rank one, and the, the, the relationship between them was quite different. Indeed, there are lots of um, dispatches in which Popham criticized him, complains about him, because he was saying that he um, Mendizábal was not collaborating in the right, but the right way, that he was not a good general. So it really depends on who talks about him. And one of the other things I find really interesting, I don't want to give too many spoilers here, is that Popham being Popham, and having incredible access to the British press, manages to ensure that his perspective is, is well represented amongst British newspapers, as your research kind of goes into. So I, I guess my question is, I mean, this comes quite late in Popham's career, it's post-Volcaran, and folks will know from my discussions with Jacqueline on previous episodes how Volcaran doesn't work out particularly well for Popham. Do you get the sense that Popham's connections with the newspaper and the way in which he exploits those is part of him trying to sort of resuscitate his career. Is this kind of the last hurrah, if you will, for Popham? You know, a, a sort of a do or die, this has got to work or I've had it. Yeah, fully agree on that. I think that he's using all these combined operations on the Northern coast, the way of promoting he, uh, his career again. So yeah, he's, um, he's using the media or the papers uh, to do that because at the very beginning you realize that when you are reading those those news all um, the news are positive all the um, vocabulary used to describe them is positive when sometimes it's not that positive what's happening there so yeah, yeah I fully think that or fully agree with what you're saying he's trying to use those operations to promote him again. And and one last thing, because I've got to ask this, you've got Wellington, who doesn't suffer fools gladly. You've got Popham, who does love to blow his own trumpet. What's the correspondence like between the two of them? Okay, yeah. Um, Wellington is praising what Popham's doing, but he tries to calm him down, saying, okay, wait. It's not the moment now, wait. Yeah, so it's really funny to read that, those dispatches. Sylvia, thank you very much for that. And thank you all of you um, for, for your input this afternoon, folks, because hopefully this has given people a sense of not only the, the variety of perspectives, the variety of approaches to studying Napoleonic history as a whole, but also kind of the the, the, the great kind of state that research is in in the field. I just want to finish off by going around the room and kind of asking what are your next projects so that folks can kind of stay in, in the loop, if you will, about your current research and what we can expect from you in the future. Ed, do you want to start us off? I've got two things. One, I'm looking um, partly prompted by you uh, at Napoleon suicides attempts and, and how all that fits into a psychological makeup. And then the other is a 
we have the family papers of a World War I German soldier that survived uh, all four years of the war, two fronts, and there's, I've seen things in his in his journal that I've never seen anywhere else. So we're doing an annotated, a very detailed annotated uh, autobiography for the family. Fantastic. Well, that's that's two very different things, but great things to look forward to. Vanya, what about you? I um, I'm about to submit the last version of article on laws of war or the Liber Code, which comes in the American Civil War, and what is the connection to Clausewitz? Because uh, it's always been like, here and there mentioned that Liber, Francis Liber, who wrote the Liber Code, was uh, um, influenced by Clausewitz, so I was looking at that. And <laughs> Andrew's talk, your conversation with Andrew just, um, Yes, I forgot completely about uh, Wellington and his attempts to improve laws of war. So I have to put this now, that passage, like uh, in in my own own article because it's important moment. So thank you so much for that. <laughs> and don't forget that you've got to start writing that new biography of of Clausewitz. So you okay. know we've we've just given you extra work to do. Yeah, <laughs> this is going to happen. Uh, Andrew, what about you? Well, as, as ever, as with, as with this project, a lot of my work these days is, is building up the series and, and, and uh, facilitating the, the work of other people. My, my own research project at the moment has actually gone rather off piece for the Napoleonic system. I'm actually looking at some of the uh, uh, amphibious operations in the Seven Years' War. That, that's been something I've been digging in and out of for, for a while now. Um, having said which, that's currently shelved because I, I've, been, I've been asked to write a very short history of the Peninsula War, the whole, the whole lot in uh, 80 or 90,000 words, which uh, I'm still trying to get my head around as to how that might be done. It's going to have to be case studies and, uh, and examples, I think, but uh, that's, that's, been, that's been my challenge and quite a good lockdown project because inevitably for something like that, it, it, it's, it's all being done from existing published material synthesizing that rather than new archival stuff so the uh, the, the archive closures haven't uh, haven't affected that one so yeah that's keeping me busy for uh, quite a while brilliant and sylvia what about you what are you working on at the moment well i have just submitted like vania an article about those initial stages in the rela in anglo-spanish relations in cantabria in 1808 and now i have moved to a more literary field. I'm, I'm working on romantic poetry about the Peninsula War, so kind of change. Ooh, that sounds very, very mm. fun. I like yeah. the sound of that. <laughs> we'll have to have a chat about you uh, potentially doing an episode on that because that, I, I kind of had, an, I have a mental list stored at the back of my head of things that might be interesting to do someday in a very distant, future um, when I actually have a job um, and that was on there so I'm I'm glad that somebody's somebody's be doing... happy to to talk about that with you yeah fantastic um well and in fact let me having said look, last question let me just pose one more question what would you like to see somebody do so I've already said that you know I'd really like somebody to go away and do something on on the Duke of York and properly look into his life and career just flicking around the room quickly if there's there's one topic that you would like people to look into properly about this period, what would it be? Ed, start us off. And I don't mean this facetiously, but I would really like something on discipline, how the whole system worked, because it ties in so much with what 
uh, I've explored. But yeah, that's I want, if I knew a guy who was working on something like that, that would do, that would be a key book in my library. Yeah, but I'm sure that guy wouldn't do a decent job of it. And if he did, he would bore the uh, the listeners of his podcast endlessly with what he found. So um... I think not. <laughs> So in jokes aside, Vanya, what about you? Well, I'm, um, my other hat is former journalist. And uh, I would like to see like the, the media history of the Napoleonic Wars. But not only because we have on Napoleon, we have pieces, bits and pieces here and so on. But we need like a, something like a global history or history looking more globally at, at that. Something like... Um, Alex Mikaberidze, Global History of Napoleonic Wars. It's a wonderful book, but like to understand also what's happening with um, the public opinion, because that's that's actually when we start to have the propaganda is the beginning of propaganda, simply because war becomes the business of the people. And um, so I would like to see something like this, but like not only Napoleon, but also what's happening in the other states. What is the, you know, the British propaganda, the whole jokes with Napoleon, just looking at global globally not just piece by piece absolutely that was something else that I when I was doing some research on caricatures and and British newspapers oh four or five six years ago now I was thinking how the hell has somebody missed this because Mm. the scope and I was looking at specifically from the British perspective Mm. nothing's been written properly about that for Mm. well looking specifically at Napoleonics for 50 60 years so even a, a country based case study is crying out to be done but an international history would be just fascinating um i I really like that so shall we add that to the list of things that you're going to do so you're going to do a class based biography (laughs) international history of newspapers oh god (laughs) my list is very long andrew what about you clearly you're going to commission all of these titles i'd I'd love to yeah there's some great ideas going around there now yeah come and talk to me um well, you've stolen mine because you've, st- you've stolen the idea of study of York, uh, which is my stock answer to this. So I've been thinking on my feet there while everybody else has been uh, has been talking. Uh, something that would, would be very useful to me at the moment uh, would would be more on the French army in the Peninsular War. I, I know um, uh, Bob Burnham did a book on the French cavalry a few, a few years ago, but uh, uh, sort of an organisational study uh, of the French in the Peninsula. Um, I'll be taking, if it's possible, I don't, I'm thinking about what records there, but t- taking the sort of approach I did for the British, that would be an amazing thing to uh, to see. And all for the Sioux, rather than all for the King Shilling, all for the Emperor's <laughs> Sioux, rather than all for yeah, the King Shilling. Yeah, there we go. There we go. Next project, then, there we are. <laughs> Problem solved. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting one, because we've had one for the Grand Armée, haven't we? Which was Michael Hughes's forging Napoleon's Grand Armée, mm-hmm. which tapped in tapped into some interesting themes around Primary Group Three, which is is raised in in Ed's work. But yes, one for the Peninsula would be really interesting, not least because of the ability of the French armies to just keep taking punishment mm. and 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 reform with a speed that surprised even Wellington. I mean, the obvious example there being the aftermath of Salamanca, but they repeatedly find that ability to just reform and retake the field. And Wellington sort of ends up looking over his shoulder going, but I dealt with you. What, why are you back already? <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's... This yeah, is, so, this same, is again, same again after Victoria. So it, it's, yeah, uh, how that happened and, and whether there was a distinct French in the peninsula military culture as against the Grand Armée military culture. Yeah, that would, that would, be, would be worth seeing. 
Fantastic. This is great. We've got the future of Napoleonic research mapped out. Last but by no means least, Sylvia, what about you? Well, um, British romantic poetry about the Peninsula War. That would be a great topic. And I was going to suggest something similar to what Vania said. Um, the pr um, press dealing with, again, limited to the Peninsula War. So it would be part of that. Fantastic. There we go. We, we have a whole kind of sub-series mapped out. Um, Andrew looks delighted because, of course, he's going to make a huge amount of money commissioning these titles. He's not, <laughs> folks, because in reality, with the best will in the world, and, and Helian is fantastic. And if folks are listening, I, I do. this isn't me sucking up to my series editor here. The experience of publishing with Helian has been an absolute dream. But yeah, folks, if you're, if you're looking at commissioning, if you're looking at writing something, on the Napoleonic Wars. Take a look at how Hellion do things. Um, have a chat with Andrew because it's well worth it. And the other great thing about Hellion is that they price their books reasonably. So rather than some publishing presses, which have great reputations, but then price their books up sort of £100 a copy, you can buy yours at a reasonable price, which brings me on seamlessly to advertising this edition, which goes out, um, this is really bad, I should know the retail price, of of this one and i'm afraid i don't yeah i should as well <laughs> somewhere between 20 and 30 pounds i would guess that sounds about right <laughs> this is this is brilliant <laughs> i should have prepared on that one shouldn't i really i should i should be getting a rap on the knuckles from our marketing department for not having the figure at my fingertips well anyway folks listen in america on. zach it's 39.95 over here Okay, $39.95 uh, over in the States. That's in, in USD. Um, sorry, in the outro, I'll, I'll get you the details and we'll, we'll sort that out when you will also get the discount code. But as, as we've alluded to, you've got some great research in there. Eight chapters in all. There's a small editorial by me where um, I poke fun at Popham, but that's, that's beside the by. Uh, the Sword and the Spirit Proceedings of the First War and Peace in the Age of Napoleon Conference is out today, the 18th of June. Please buy it from Hellion website and enjoy the discount that's on offer. In the meantime, though, Ed, Vanya, Sylvia and Andrew, thank you very much for joining me. My, my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. That was Ed Koss, Vanya Bellinger, Andrew Bamford and Sylvia Gregorio Seinth, all amongst the eight historians featured in The Sword and the Spirit, which is available to buy from hellion.co.uk right now. I promised you a discount, and here it is. As a thank you to you for your loyalty as a Napoleonicist listener, for the next month, until the 18th of July, you can get 25% off when you order direct from Hellion. The normal retail price is £25. Just use code PODSPIRIT25, that's a capital P and a capital S, that's PODSPIRIT25, or one word, in the checkout, and thank you to those of you who buy it. If you're an academic or a student and think your university library needs to stock the title, then please do point them in the direction of the listing on Hellion's website. As you heard, there is a brilliant bunch of research in there, and it would be great to spread the word as widely as possible. I also want to do a shout out to the other authors in the volume. Hayley Stewart has done a great piece on British diplomacy and the status of Hanover during the early part of the period. Jacqueline Writer brings our second chapter on the pompous Pratt Popham, and yes, that is a technical term. 
Alistair Nichols reminds us that when it comes to foreign troops serving in the British Army, it's not all about desertion. That's literally the title of his chapter as he looks at their service record. And Gavin Lewis has done a brilliant reappraisal of the aftermath of the Siege of San Sebastian with some really interesting results. As ever, a big thank you to my Napoleonicist Patreon supporters, my Commander Patron Ger Brown, and my Mentioned in Dispatches patrons Alex Churchill, Anna Bakulenko, Beatrice de Graff, Brendan Teeling, an anonymous Canadian, Gareth Copeland, James Bevan, Jamie Kingston, Jim Deary, John Haynes, Lucy Tapner, Rob Griffith, and Rory Muir. I'll be back again soon, but until then, I'm Zach White, this has been The Napoleonicist. Take care of yourselves, my friends, stay well, stay safe, and as always, thank you for listening. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.